This is Beth's book, okay? On the, uh, on the inside jacket, uh, there's a quote, and it says, ideas are rarely the problem. What holds, us, what holds all of us back to what we know? And I'll tell you a little story um, about Betaworks and, and G that kind of proves that that's, that's true. The, one of the first projects that I did at Betaworks uh, when I got here five and a half years ago was with GE and as with our game Dots. And GE were doing something around uh, Gravity Day, which is, uh, for all you nerds out there, that's September the 8th because the Earth's gravitational pull is something like 9.8 seconds squared or something. Beth will probably know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and, so, and so we got together with GE and we made uh, a mode in Dots. Where Dots is, is a game that, where you connect uh, dots and we had this thing called gravity mode where you could press this little button and all the dots would fall down and that would enable you to make uh, a, better, a better score. And it, it launched for six days, so it was live for six days. It had 172 million uh, clicks on that little GE button, 172 million. And you know what's really interesting is that that could have been a disaster. It was a huge, huge success. Went on to be uh, a paid-for mode in uh, in Dots, and we won some creative awards. But it could have been could have been a disaster. But what Beth's team, Beth and her team, Linda and the rest of the marketing team, a culture of experimentation and courage, and like really getting out there and trying things, and that all came from Beth and her team. So, you know, when it, it's not like, it's not bullshit in the jacket, you know, like they've, they've been great partners with Betaworks. They've G's done stuff with Poncho. Um, they were the first sponsor of our accelerator camp. Uh, so they uh, built some bots with us, with Dexter. And so really, you know, it's so much easier for a big corporation to do nothing, right? To just be like, oh, well, you know, and they, they all talk a big game about working with station, but Beth and her team, they did it. Like they were here, they were in the startup community and they were doing these things. And, and it's been, um, you know, it's been a pleasure to work with Beth and her team over the last five years. Um, I've seen her speak a couple of times um, over the years, but had the, uh, the pleasure of, of seeing Beth speak a couple of weeks ago. And I don't know if it's like the, the release from the, like the corporate shackles, the corporate communication shackles, or or just the or, or the process of writing a book. But you know, she was always very thoughtful and honest. Even more um, um, honest, and just you know, had some great stuff to talk about. So I think you're in for a treat. Um, Beth and Shana from Business Insider, please come on up and uh, have fun. Thank you all. Hi, everyone. So Beth, you and I have chatted once before, and you told me a little bit about the beginnings of your career, how you studied biology in college, and you initially wanted to. Did you, at that point, ever imagine that your career would take you where it has? No, I didn't. I mean, I, um, I, did, I studied biology. I wanted to be a science reporter, and here I am. Um, in some ways, to what James was saying, though, for me, I did end up kind of having a career that's about storytelling. 
And putting the book together made me appreciate that. And I think for all of us, the value of story and, and kind of business, you're a strategy, you, you cover strategy. And I, I always like to say strategy is a story well told. And I think that's a good test of do you have a good strategy? Is it a story? Does it hold together? So as I've looked back on my career, I think I've always been even perhaps a bit more proud to say I'm a storyteller. Um, and I think business needs to make room for story. Sure. So it was more something you realized looking back that there was like a common thread. Going yeah. Through. But I think um, I mean it's what you know it's what drove us here to work with the teams at BetaWorks because we wanted to unearth the GE stories. We wanted people to connect with the brand in different. It wasn't just about the logical outcomes. It wasn't just you know okay we're going to make you more money. We're going to deliver X Y Z product. It was. Um, can you connect in a different way? Uh, we worked with startups because we wanted to unlock the entrepreneurial spirit in a big company that we knew existed. And it was about the stories of what does it take to start a company? What does it take to struggle to make that happen? So it was as much that connection, I think, that, that I find drove me and drove the teams I worked with. As you know, one thing you just mentioned that I've always thought was really interesting is, um, I think you said, unlocking this entrepreneurial spirit in yeah. a big company. Um, and I feel like you know, in my reporting, I hear this a lot, like, you know, be entrepreneurial in your career. And I, I'm never 100% sure what that means. Can you tell us what it means to yeah, you? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And I think it means something different for everybody. And uh, I worry a little bit. You're so right, Sean. I mean, just people throw it around all over the place. Like, like just saying it makes you one, right? Like, I'm an entrepreneur, right? Like, I'm just declaring it. And um, to me, entrepreneur is somebody who wants to do, a, do better. They see a better way, and they'll do um, And I feel like entrepreneurs are needed everywhere in the world. And um, they're not just here at Betaworks. They're not just founders of companies. I think we'd all be a lot better off if entrepreneurs were driving our, our EMT. Our nurses felt they were entrepreneurial. Our teachers felt they were entrepreneurial and that they would just fight whatever they had to make something better happen. So to me, that's what entrepreneurial is. And um, it's unfortunate for big companies that they created many roadblocks that forced many people, probably many of the people here, to go off and do their own thing. To me, it's good for entrepreneurism, but not so good for big companies because they've seemed to um, say, no, that's not welcomed here. Um, although hopefully that's changing. Hopefully so. Um, Do you consider yourself an entrepreneur? You know, I've been asked this question more times than one would <laughs> think for a journalist, and I, I do. I think I'm um, sort of forging new ways of doing things, hopefully, if I'm doing my job right. Yeah. But um, yeah, I hope so. And you're working in a news organization that was born uh, from an entrepreneurial model. Yes, yes, it was. Yeah, so I think that's something that we, we really value, and hopefully a lot of companies value. Yeah, um, I mean, I uh, at GE, we, we would, you know, hey, we're a 120-year-old startup. Um, it was more of a rallying cry than it was the reality. I mean, maybe I'm the only one who believed it. Um, but, you know, you'd have to say, go back to, you're, you're in a company that you can remember when it was founded. I'm on the board of Nike. Phil Knight still roams around. You can remember, and he certainly can remember, when Nike was founded. Um, as old as I am, I was not as old at GE when it started. Um, but to be able to sort of remind people of, like, Thomas Edison, and every story, every company has a founder's story. And it's really important that you don't lose sight of that as part of your story. Um, and you as an entrepreneur, that you have your, if that's part of your identity, what does that mean? How do you fight for better? 
I'm curious, is that something, I'm, I'm sure you did a lot of hiring at GE, um, is that something you looked for in the people that, in the job candidates that came your way? Over time, early on I wouldn't have. I, um, I think early on my career was probably one of more fear and looking to other people to, you know, what's the rule book and could I, could I bend the rules or not, more looking for the rules. And as I got more confident and more experienced, definitely, um, more entrepreneurial, and I liked the I liked uh, especially toward the end. I gravitated to kind of figure it out roles, which I really, I, I highly recommend that everyone should have some at least one person on your team. Uh, depends on how big your team is. If it's just you, maybe this is you. But um, who is a figure it out job? And I'll give you an example. Um, I hired a woman who. Um, had come from doing financing of energy projects in Africa. And was like, okay, if she can make stuff happen in Africa, she clearly can figure stuff out. And uh, asked her to come into the company and help us figure out a path for uh, blockchain and Bitcoin. What does it mean to a big company? I'm kind of like, go figure it out. I don't know. Here's what success will look like. You'll find other people in the company who are thinking about it too. You'll find resources and you'll come back with a strategy for how the company can do this. And she did it. And she found a lot of people. And I think we need more people like that in our company. So you give them just a little bit of direction. You're not really sure, but you like give them the carte blanche to figure it out. She was very entrepreneurial. So I do think I gravitated more toward that. And uh, as we created a venture group, both at, when I was at NBC and at GE, um, created two different venture groups. And we were always looking to bring more on on serial entrepreneurs in, and um, it was a tough sell in the beginning because, like, why are you going to go work for a big company? Um, but often, I think if you created the right space in that environment because there was so much opportunity, and if you're entrepreneurial and somebody just says carte blanche, you go figure something out. One guy I'm thinking of in particular, he helped us create three new businesses that GE seeded. One was um, an inspection by drone business. Another was a kind of drone navigation business. And again, he found people in the established business units to come and work with him. And then it gave them encouragement. And they started to say, hey, I can behave that way. So I think the, those kind of roles have a multiplying effect that other people see, hey, I can do that too. That reminds me of something else I've heard you say in the book. Um, which is um, leaders acting without explicit permission from their bosses. Um, it sounded a little bit like that entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. Um, so why do you think people are, well, two-part question, why do you think people are so afraid to act without that, you know, permission in bold letters, and how can we get better at doing that? Yeah, I... Um I seriously thought of calling my book Permission Granted because it's the underlying thesis of what I feel I, I learned in the course of my life in business and what I saw others dealing with is often we're just, we're, we're waiting for somebody to tell us it's okay. And big company and small, it's especially big companies, but it happens everywhere. This is what happens. Somebody comes in and they have a great idea and someone tells them no and you never hear from them again. Or alternately, Somebody's like, they're, they're like, I can never do that. I don't have enough money, enough time. My boss won't let me. My investors won't let me. My board won't let me. And actually, those might all have been valid things to have said. But really what they're, if you really dig out, they're, they're saying, I'm afraid of trying it. 
So it's much easier to just say, you know, my investor will never, my investors will never go for that. Oh my God, my investors are horrible. They'll just never go for it. Because it takes a lot to say, I'm going to give that a shot. Do I really need to ask my investors? Do I really need to ask the manager if this is okay? Do I know what's in the scope of what I can do? And so I just felt that was for myself. I saw time and again where gatekeepers, and by gatekeepers I mean these are the people who don't let you through the gate. Um, they just, you know, say, no, you can't do that. And I would go, okay, I guess I can't do it. And then you'd go, well, wait a minute. I didn't need to ask that permission. I even gravitated, it's kind of hokey, but I gravitated toward um, doing little permission slips with people I worked with. I, and it sounds hokey, and it is, okay? I, I, it really is kind of geeky. But um, um, the notion of like you used to do in high school when you wanted to get out of gym or chemistry, um, I was too much of a goody two-shoes frady cat. So I never did that in high school, so I needed to do it for myself in work. But I literally kept a stack on my desk, and people would say, ah, you know, my, I can't do it or whatever. I'd be like, okay, I, I got your back, but somehow I think that's not enough. Like, go fill this out. And it's little tiny things. I mean, it's just giving yourself permission to show up in a different way, to ask a question. It's not giving yourself permission to kind of bet the future of the whole company. Um, but I think sometimes those small acts are what people need to do more of. Things. So I want to go back to what you said a few minutes ago, which is that um, I think you said early on in your career you would kind of try to do something and then someone would say no and you yeah. just accept that yeah. no. Tell us about a time when, when that happened and you, you tried and just you know, went back. Yeah, well, um, I, um, Earl, I worked in media uh, for a, a while before I ended up on the uh, corporate side of GE, but I w one of the first times I was at NBC, I had a boss that uh, I thought a jerk. Um, and he just said no at every chance. And um, the team and I, I, I finally got, we, we kind of got together. I finally got at my nerve. I did a kind of whole little report. I actually have it today. It was so power, it meant so much to me. I saved it. And I marched into his office and kind of gave him the report and said, we need to do better. And really all we were asking is, just let us have a shot at trying things. He kind of doled out all the answers. He told everybody what they could do. And he was like, no, um, basically you and the team are wrong. Uh, I'm kind of the boss. You have to do what I say. And I left. Um, but went to the next place um, that there were other people like him and other bosses like him, and I've sort of seen that pattern in my career. So I think that recognition that there were ways I could have challenged it, there were certain things I could have done myself without asking for his okay, and the job would have been better, and you know, you learn that over time. I love that. I mean, as somebody who pitches ideas like on a daily basis, and sometimes a lot gets turned down, um, I, I feel like I could use this, you know, go back to the drawing board and try again. Yeah, well, here's, Sean, here's the thing. I, uh, you remind me of another example. Again, I, I left and I ended up coming back to NBC. And I, um, I remember we pitched an idea for what was the NBC Experience Store. I thought it was just a brilliant idea. And, um, and our, it wasn't going to change NBC's fortunes at all, but it was, um, hey, walk around New York City with little bags. And I pitched it to, to, to my boss, and um, he said no. And the team and I were devastated, but we were so convinced this was the right thing to do. The CFO hated it. The ROI was horrible. Uh, we did our homework. We came back. Anyway, long story short, by the third time we pitched it, Bob looked at me and he said, you know what? I tried so hard to say no. I wanted to say no. But you guys did a good job. I'm saying yes. Um, and, and I'm saying yes because you made it so hard to say no. 
I think it's a good idea. It's not a great idea, but I know you guys are going to make it work. And so what I learned is he was, did we have the passion? Did we have the stamina to go, go the distance? And also, like, the idea got better. We, we did better work. We had a little diorama. We started showing things. And we made it so real that he had to be opened had we not gotten sort of constructive feedback, but he was challenging us. So that was a big lesson for me. You know, we started talking a little bit about uh, management just now. Um, one thing I've heard you say before is that traditional forms of management are all but dead. Um, so what do you mean by that? And what does management, effective management look like today? Yeah, uh, we were talking about this earlier. I, I really do believe um, management as a control function is over. And um, I worry about this. We were saying earlier, I worry about this because when we're not teaching it, and maybe you don't even teach it, it's more coaching, coaching your colleagues and you're getting yourself a coach. Just generation after generation, we're told this is the way you manage yourself, your colleagues, whether you're managing a team, a project. This notion of just you control things. You don't. You don't control. We don't control much of anything. We barely control. I barely control myself, but uh, you can speak for yourself. But we don't control much of anything. And so yet, I think we're still in this model of I'm the boss, I manage this project, I'm telling you what to do. To me, it's much more your job as a, quote, manager, is to have a vision. Where are we going? Why? Set the team free. Here's the vision. My job is to space the coaching to get it done. Uh, the freedom to like test it along the way and know that you're not going to get it done perfectly, but you're going to get it done in a way that you think is meant to do. And here's our commitment. You're going to tell me when you need help. You're going to tell me when, um, when there's a problem. You're going to tell me what I don't want to know. So it's built a lot on feedback. And you're going to encourage your team to get stuff done. But instead, what we do is we try to micromanage things because we're afraid. We try to, you know, kind of think we can control people, and I, I think we've just got it wrong. And I, I can tell you that based on a career of almost 30 years in business at the time. You mean you got it wrong as a manager? I got it wrong, and I got it wrong in thinking I controlled things. I got it wrong in thinking I controlled people. I mean, you know, I'm the manager. I said so. What a horrible answer. You don't, you don't say that to your kids. You don't certainly don't say that to your colleagues. Um, the lack of... Um, openness to feedback, the lack of openness to ask for help. Um, those are things, whether you're managing a team of two or a company of 500,000, I think you have to have somewhat humility that you bring to the job that says, I don't know the answer. We're here together to figure it out. Um, and I'm here to help you, but I'm not here to tell you what to do. So related to that topic of figuring things out together, um, one thing you mentioned in the book, and I, I like this idea, is um, agit what is it? agitated inquiry. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how do you encourage agitated inquiry at work? And do you think this is happening at most workplaces? Um, I hope it's happening at, at many good workplaces. But my experience is it's really hard to get to. And agitated inquiry, me, inquiry to me is just beating ideas up and hopefully not each other to make sure they go the test of time. I share in the book, um, I devote a whole section to it, and I painfully share my experiences of where it didn't go well. Um, and here's where it doesn't go where and where it falls apart in companies, because this idea of agitated inquiry is you're agitating for a better way and you're open up to like questioning. 
But what often happens in companies is when we, one, we get very territorial about an idea or someone's capability. So it's, my team's been um, associated, or I've often been associated with teams where we're leading change. So if you're not careful, it's, <coughs> excuse me, it's the cool kids against the people who don't want to change. And then it's like, they just don't get uninformed souls. And the last thing you're going to do is ask them for any sort of input because they don't get it. Meanwhile, they have a point of view, they've been working, and so you set up this really weird dynamic of us against them. And so um, bad things happen, and I, I've shared some of those stories where you stop listening to one another, um, you make bad decisions because it's my team against your team, and how dare they? They're not allowed to make a point of view in that. So the, what, I, what I've come to learn, and the better way forward is to invite your critics in, to say, you know, and I'm not saying invite just all the, the Debbie and Donnie Downers of the world who are just negative people, but points of view who have a different point of view. Invite them in. Bring in outside sparks, people from the outside who have a different perspective, who potentially could disrupt what you're doing. Bring you a reality check. Uh, ask, tell me something out of that critical feedback. Um, and try to work your, way, your work, your, work your way through that. Anyway, I have a host of ideas, but I do think it has to be part of your process. If you're not inviting in criticism, inviting in critical thinking against what you're doing, inviting in just people who have difference in your team, you're never going to get to a better place. It's been my experience. You know, one instance of bringing in an outsider that you write about in the book is um, has to do with the the genesis of Hulu. Yeah. Um, and I, I like that story because I I think it's it's a good example of how something it, it's it seems unlikely and through the right systems you make it more likely if that makes any yeah. sense. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about why Hulu worked. Yeah. So Hulu worked because we had done a lot of things that didn't work. Um, so, um, and we finally knew how to at least get out of our own way. So I take you back 10 years ago um, to, to media and the emergence of digital media. Uh, this was at a time I was just starting and if you were in the media world, I was at NBC and you were in the media world and um, at that time the idea of cats playing the piano was like really funny, that's so cute, ha ha ha. And then it was really scary because it was like, oh my gosh, we don't know how to make those videos of cats playing the piano. So people were really fearful and the change was really threatening. And so I had been at NBC, sent to GE, came back, GE, so they're like, hey, you, you like change, you help us figure this out. And um, we did some things that didn't work out. One of the first things we did was we acquired a big women's community called iVillage. And the company, we just destroyed it. Um, antibodies came out internally. And this happens in a lot of companies. You get acquired, and the mothership destroys it. So we set about doing that. And um, <laughs> we, we didn't get any closer to, to getting better at cats playing the piano. And at the same time, um, Fox and News Corp had, had a similar thing. You may recall they acquired MySpace, and they set about destroying it as well. And so we were all panicked, Google, so the panic came out. And so we finally got together and said, we have to figure this out together. And because we had both failed, I think we were much more willing to do it, and we realized as good as our teams were, we couldn't do this ourselves. So we went out and found an entrepreneur in Jason Kyler who founded Hulu. I mean, we seeded it, but he founded it. He started it. And there were a couple of like rules or process checks we had to do. One, he had to be able to pull anything from the mothership that he wanted to succeed and reject anything that 
sucked, basically. Um, we had created this beautiful video player at NBC. We spent a fortune on it. We're like, great, Jason, look, we have... And he's like, that thing stinks. It's horrible. It's a horrible user experience. I'm not using it. Now, if, you, if we had not had him and we hadn't set up this other structure, we would have forced him. We would have said, we had to write it off. Are you kidding? Do you know how much money we've spent? He could say no. He could and, and do what he needed to do. And so it worked because we gave him the freedom he needed. We gave him the resources to pull what he needed to be successful and say no to what didn't work. He had people like me and, and people like me at Fox to say internally, no, you can't kill him. No, we have to be able to fund what he's doing. And it was a lot of fighting. You know, the team at Bravo is going, well, why are you giving them money? I'm more successful. They haven't done anything yet. Um, so it was that kind of mechanism. Uh, and out of that, seeing that you could actually seed something uh, from kind of traditional roots um, it, with enough of the right mechanisms. Now, fast forward a decade later, Hulu's been reasonably successful. It's not Netflix, but it's also think like what could the cable industry, the broadcast industry have done if more of them kind of outsourced what they were doing? Could Hulu have been even more of a viable competitor in Netflix? I mean, it's still, the, the story's still being written, but you know, I think it's also the struggle. Everybody wants to do it themselves. They fight the change. So I don't think the Hulu path has, has been easy either. Yeah, I definitely see what you're saying, that it's there's there are a lot of um, very reasonable obstacles to pursuing a path like that. Um, but ultimately, like in the long term, good, very good things can come out of it. Between Total tug of war. I remember fighting with HR. They're like, well, what do you mean? We're going to pay these people in Hulu stock? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they could get really rich. Yeah. But they're taking a risk in doing this. Yeah, but they'll be paid differently than GE or News Corp. Yeah. So that, you know, right there in a, could kill something because you don't have the right payment and incentive structure. So somebody has to fight for that. It's not easy. That's why I think companies have a hard time doing this. Another thing that you mentioned on a, on a similar topic to companies, um, GE potentially included, um, there is always this tension between meeting uh, quarterly earning expectations and then uh, prioritizing long-term goals. Yeah. And it's, it's very hard to do both, even though it's important. So uh, it's a broad question, but how do you do that? I, 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 if it were easy, more people would be doing it. Um, I, I think it's a tension. That's one of the reasons I felt compelled to write this book was that we need more people to fight for the future. I don't care what organization you're in, we need more people to fight for the future. And um, I, if, I believe that. So um, I'm encouraged that you get companies like BlackRock and others that are out there saying we're fighting for the long term. I wish we could see more of that. Not once. And all the time I worked seeding venture teams within companies, investing and partnering with startups, I not once had an investor ask me about that. How are you doing it? How do we measure your success? They just didn't take it very seriously until you hit something big. You know, They certainly didn't want to see the losses. So I really think what I would recommend is that I think you need at least two lanes or two speeds for most established companies. You need your kind of core, repeatable process that are the profitability is a little bit more understandable. And then you need this kind of what's next, what's new lane, where the metrics are different, the capital allocation is different, the kind of people. I know it works. I've seen it, but it works. That's what I think we need to be agitating for. 
It's interesting the way you framed it that there, and I, if I'm understanding correctly, it's almost like two different groups of people, two different types of, um, you know, financial setups. Um, so it's they're almost operating w independently, but all, but they're working toward a, a, a joint goal. Yeah, I think there's some independence, and I think it depends on the company, but it's this kind of optimize today and build tomorrow. And the build tomorrow has a very different framework, and I mean, there's a near future and a far future. And you're, you're just putting the right people, I mean, there's company people to understand is there's some people, and many of them are here, like, you know, the, in a, like they don't dream of just operating a thirty, a twenty billion dollar business. They dream of creating a twenty billion dollar business. They want to seed it and get it to that. At least get it on a path to viability. Some people just want to keep doing that over and over again. They want to seed, launch, see something grow, and then go back and do it again. We don't make room for those people in traditional companies. More are changing. I think corporate venture is changing that, but that's what I'm talking about. We don't we don't make room, and you can do that without betting the whole company on that. In fact, you must. And I'm worried for company. Yeah, I, I I see what you're saying about that. That it's it's more just like the mindset of making room for those those types of people as opposed to fearing what they might do to your company. Yeah. Well, here's what I see happen. I've seen this happen over and over again. Often. Big companies, and honestly, I've seen this with startups, well-funded startups, you throw a lot of money at things fast, and you probably throw too money at something at the wrong time. And I've seen companies have to write off $200 million. I, I was part of a team that we had to write off $200 million of an energy storage company that we created with a startup that, had, that went out of business because they had too much potential and took on too many things. So that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, it's about really the test and learn, the kind of more that you can start to bring into established organizations. And then with confidence, no, we're going to lean into that. We're going to put more money at work. And that's why I think venture works when it works well, is it's meeting out the funding at the right stage at the right time. Uh, yeah, I imagine, I mean, that, that, that makes so much logical sense. People, as, do, um, people don't do it. People don't do yeah. it, yeah. So. But, um, well, hopefully that, that will change yeah. at some point. I think, it, again, I think it's encouraging that you have people like Larry Fink at, at BlackRock agitating for this, but have they changed their metrics? Have their, have their analysts and investors, I don't see that they have. So when they start to look at these two tracks in organizations, when they start to ask smaller companies what they're doing in a different dimension, I'll feel that they're serious about it. Right, you need to see like <coughs> concrete examples yeah. of, of of their behavior. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we talked a, a lot about uh, sort of the uncertainty surrounding your future as a big company. Um, I want to talk about how you in your own career. Um, how did you? I mean, you you were at when you count the years you were at GE and NBC. Um, that, it was a really long time. Yeah. Um, how did you know that that was the right place for you to be? Well, I didn't always know that. Um, I, um, I, I just, you know, I, I'm ambitious. I'm competitive. 
kind of jumped into a career. Um, I talk in the book, I mean, my career started um, in a very, for me, unusual way. I, my career took off just as I became a mother and um, I sort of went forth in a path as a divorce. I got a divorce and went forth as a, as a single mother. My life, in, in many ways, and, and my career, so, but that created in me this real sense of needing to be responsible because I now was a mother and uh, had to make money. And, and so um, I just had to work and I had to like make it work. And so that was really the driving force for me. I wanted to be a journalist, but pretty quickly I wasn't so good as one. I went behind the scenes. I was pretty good there and kind of created a path in communication. Um, but I, I didn't have a big plan. I didn't have like a 30-year plan that said I'm going to get to vice chair of GE and this is what I'm going to do. Um, there, I document there were some things, I, I, some opportunities I didn't take. I talk in the book about not accepting a job offer from Steve Jobs to go work for Apple. Um, you know, in the uh, annals of financial planning, that was probably not one of the smartest moves I ever made. Um, <laughs> If you look at the G stock and the Apple stock, it probably uh, was not so smart. But I, um, I didn't take that job because it, it wasn't what I, I didn't feel like I, it was a job I wanted to do. I had good reason. That being said, I did have regrets about it. So there were definitely times I had regrets. I guess if I were to sum it all up, the secret or my secret of what worked for me was to take assignments that people often didn't want. I went back to NBC at a time when the news division had been in disarray and everybody's like, that's the craziest job on earth. But I just knew I had to do that job. It was a gut check. It became my entrepreneurial awakening. I went to GE at a time when no one from media would ever think of doing that. People didn't want to leave NBC to go to GE. Why would you do that? Um, I didn't take a Steve Jobs job because I just didn't feel like it was what I needed to do. So I've always tried what I wanted to do. And it kept me um, sort of taking on new assignments. GE was a huge platform for a curious person. I got to experience a lot of different industries, connect a lot of dots, be an innovation in a way I might not have in a less, you know, really the conglomerate model kind of fell out of favor along the way, but it was good for a curious, innovative person, to be honest. Yeah, so it, it kind of seems like you you had your hands in a lot of a lot a lot of different projects and um, roles at, at GE and NBC, and you almost had starkly different jobs um, from the time when you started to when you ended your career there. And I think that's something you know I I've been thinking about as I talk to people in my own reporting is how to have different different jobs in the same company or different careers at the same company? I'm a big believer, and especially now that I'm kind of out of a company, I wish I had thought more about this, but just professional fluidity. I, I, I'm much more, whatever I do next in business is going to be much more with this lens of professional fluidity, meaning um, I, I have different, I'm able to do different things at once. And I know that's why I stayed at GE as long as I did, because I was able to carve these different roles out. I was able to go from marketing to be head of innovation, because to me, marketing was about living in the market. And when you do that, you see change, you see innovation. It's not like I got an engraved invitation saying you must define marketing this way. It was there to be found. Um, and so I've been a big believer in sort of job crafting, this notion of 
add responsibilities, take on things other people don't want to do that you want to do. I mean, it have to be some return to the company. I'm not saying, you know, I have to go and do something crazy, but um, to push myself to take on assignments that other people didn't want or didn't see um, opportunity and to use them as a way to build my skills, open up opportunity, and that's kind of what's kept me there, what kept me there and what helped me build a career. I feel like I've just had a great career coaching session, so thank you. Um, but I think we're going to turn it over to questions now. So uh, you talked a little bit about Hulu. I remember when that was announced, it was called like Project X or something. And I remember my reaction was thinking like, wow, two giant companies trying to do this. This is going to absolutely fucking fail. Um, so what, but obviously it didn't. It's one of the two biggest digital platforms in the world. So what do you think it was made, led that to be successful? And do you, would you recommend collaborating in that way again? Yeah, it's funny you remember that. You thought that um, it was actually the media called it Clown Co. Clown Co, that was it. Yep. Yeah, so they're like, uh, look at the clowns that are putting this together. There's no way this is ever going to succeed. And for good reason, right? The track record of, of all those clowns hadn't been so good. Um, so um, I think it's really hard for two companies to get together and do that. Um, and I think the, the leaders had a, were panicked but had a real commitment. I mean, Peter Chernin on the News Corp side was very open to it. Jeff Zucker and the, our team was very open to doing that. Uh, we had a shared vision. So that's the first thing. Do you have a shared vision? Are you will really willing to share the risk and the reward? Um, and so you have to have the right kind of governance in place. Um, and we both had to champion the change. So we had to be able to, when Jason would make the teams at Fox or NBC uncomfortable, we had to say, keep going, Jason, keep going. And we had to turn around to the team and go, like, he's okay. Don't kill him. He's got to go forward. So you have to, um, it takes, People are willing to be in that uncomfortable space. Not all companies are willing to do that. Um, their investors go, what are you doing? You're wasting all this money. I don't see any return. For the first, I think it was like, might have been a year, but definitely the first six mini revenue. In fact, they didn't want to book revenue. Um, and I was overseeing sales, and there was a lot of agitation. How many people can look at their investor and go, oh, no, we're, we're not, we're not, we're choosing not to have any revenue this year. Um, so that's what you have to be able to do. Um, so I think it was unusual, and I've been a part of those situations since then. Some worked and some didn't, and often they fell companies do. And if you're a startup and you're you know, looking at being acquired or you're looking to go and partner with a company, we big companies change out people a lot. So you might have a good vision and a good champion, and you get in the middle of it and they get changed out. So you have to be ready for a lot of adaptation if you're leading the charge as an entrepreneurial, uh, as an entrepreneur. Oh, I have this. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Uh, good. <laughs> so uh, I work in fintech for a 200-year-old startup called Citibank. Yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, we are a division that perpetuates transformation as to you, and transformation is a conscious choice. I love the way you said that. That's really good. Thank you. You can I'm take gonna, it. I am. I'm going to move forward I, with it. I'm going to send me the little trademark. I will. I have a white paper. I'll yeah. send it to you. Um, is that with transformation comes reality, which is legal, governance, yeah. risk, compliance, et cetera. What has your experience been overall? We have probably similar yeah. situations where you try to innovate and you try to build something great and you get really excited about it and then you just get completely Shut squashed. Down. Yeah. 
How have you kind of circumvented that overall nightmare that is my day to day? Yeah. Well, you need you need some place where you can scream, like scream into your pillow. I have a room. It's into, called the quiet room, yeah. but it's actually where scream. I cry. <laughs> yeah. The crying room is good. I totally <laughs> subscribe to that. So good. Check you have that because it's frustrating as anything, right? As fuck, honestly. It, it, it is. It is. Um, a couple of things, I think that uh, you usually get the, especially in regulated businesses like FinTech, right? Well, we're regulated. That's an alibi. Really? Okay, show me what the issue is. Try, and you, just as long as you know what the framework is, so I'd be very clear with legal. I've often found success bringing legal in, getting the right parts of legal and bringing them in early. I would, my experience has been some of the most inventive people I've worked with in those situations when set free are from legal. So I could point you to three or four people. In fact, I'm happy to give you the name of somebody who came out of legal and helped do some of the pointers. Same with HR. Um, but, but the thing is, like, these folks are, they, partly they have a job to do. It's, it's going back to here's the problem we're trying to solve. That was also something I tried to, to, a couple of ways of reframing it. Here's the problem we're trying to solve. I need your help. Um, he, okay, we know these are the restrictions. Now help us figure out, given that, how do we work within that? Um, and I'd also reframe things as a bit of a hypothesis. Like, this is our hypothesis. And the last thing, and it's hard, I know, but often trying to invite some of those regulators in early, say we're creating this kind of test and learn space, have them on advisory as some kind of toll gate, you know, that you're bringing them in early when it's less risky so that they're not totally wigged out by it. That, those have been the things I've seen helpful. Good luck. And uh, maybe instead of co-working space, we can create corporate screaming rooms. Maybe that's our business idea out of tonight. Yeah, exactly. They could look really great, right? We Hi, Beth. Hi. So I just left corporate America with my business partner. We started a storytelling agency. Yay, what's it called? It's called BizLove. BizLove, love that. Yeah, it's not everyone's cup of tea, um, but that's the point. So and we, well, why do you say that's not everyone's cup of tea? Because I think that love is still a voodoo word in business, and we're trying to change that, but I think there's a journey ahead of us. Um, so my background's I worked at EY for seven years, and then I got to partner with Simon Sinek on a new partnership model. How do you activate and scale the why, um, which is a huge challenge. So we spent three years innovating on that exact question. Um, and, and my question for human consulting, which is very hard-hitting, tangible, to storytelling, which is really the essence of a company. It's so much more than comms. But a lot of my pitch is around how do I change perception of biz love and storytelling to be the strategy well told. So I wonder um, what your experience is around that conversation, if you have any pointers for us. Yeah, well, um, I'm glad. Congratulations. Thank I, you. Really well done. I mean, I think that start with why. What is your why? Um, you know, I think increasingly because back to your, oh, I'm sorry, your name again? Monty. Monty the, I love that issue of transformation. I mean, it's sort of a buzzword for a good reason in companies these days. But everybody's sort of have, grabbing a piece of transformation. So you're seeing HR, marketing, innovation, strategy, maybe CIOs, that, so the IT company. So is there some way to kind of grab a hold of the transformation trend that's, that's grabbing everybody as a way to kind of get their attention? I'm seeing a lot more HR departments looking to play a role here. Um, so maybe some sort of marriage between HR, IT, and comms is a way to get that embedded. 
Um, I just like um, starting with those people and just giving them the power to tell their story. So, you know, it's, it sounds soft, but um, if you can get story and what the impact they're going to have in helping lead the transformation of the company, it gives them power, it gives them relevance, um, they can unlock the stories of the people. So I would, I would kind of pick a, a specific group and sort of help them, coach them, so that they can start to be the, the champions. Um, it's always great when a CEO is championing you, but my recommendation if you're a startup or an agency is you need that championship, but it can only go so far. If you don't have other people in the organization who are helping you navigate and figure it out, it's not, it's not going to happen. And words matter. Um, BizLove's a great name, but maybe you do is connecting your strategy, start to show some model where it's emotion, it's logic, you know, sort of speak the language they want to hear and then kind of give them a little bit of the language you need them to hear. So I'd spend a lot of time on the words you use so that you maybe don't wig out some of the wrong people at the wrong time. Good luck. Hi, Beth. And hi. also, hi, Shana. I don't want you to feel lonely up there. Hello. Uh, so, uh, uh, Howard at Yex told me I had to come see your talk. Uh, he's actually a huge fan of yours. Thank you. Uh, yes, he's, it's great what they're yeah. doing. Do you work at Yex? I used no. to. I run another startup now. I have a couple team members here. I'm not going to point them out. Uh, I, one day I'm going to stop saying, actually pronouncing it out. So uh, that means the brand's getting stronger. Uh, what, what advice would you give to New Yorkers? And a lot of, if you think about it, they're like relatively young for a second job, uh, especially like female. Uh, and I have a few here that some of my team is here. I'm not going to point them out. But having been through your experience, and you're talking about a lot of stuff you wouldn't do, you've been through a lot. Yeah. Uh, what key piece of advice would you give them? <clears throat> well, I'm, one, I think it's, it's an interesting time to be a woman in the world and a woman working. Um, just know your strength. I mean, uh, back to why, like why are you doing it, but also know your strength. Um, I feel like um, throughout my career, I was plagued a lot by a lack of confidence. And I had every reason to be confident. I grew up in a small town, loving parents. I, and the world will take it away from you if, you, if, if you're not careful. Um, and so know your strength. And um, you, you know whatever happens, no one can take away from you the fact that you do a good job and make your, you can make your work really great. So that would you know, know your strength and just make the work really great. Um, and over time, you start to build up some, some reservoir of confidence by, by that. Um, and just remind people of your strength and your story. It's getting to know your story alo along the way. Um, it's hard when you're building your career. We all look for other people for reinforcement. And you know, social media is not making it any easier for any of us. We all feel like every day we're like behind. We're, we're like missing out. We're a loser. Um, so be very careful uh, the feedback that you accept, um, but be, it's a bit of a fine line, but it starts with that core sense of know my strength, and then I can judge is that feedback relevant to what I'm trying to do in the world and what I'm good at, and I, I, that, that's, where I, that's where I would start. Hey, hey. Um, what do you see as the common traits or the common strategies for people like Jason Killer, you know, trying to transform a, a, a company or for the groups that are trying to transform that company? And what is your advice to them? Well, I think the strength is um, what I saw in someone like him and other entrepreneurs I've worked with is an unrelenting focus, what we said, on making something better. So, like, you just, it's not an option. You have to do that. So, I think that's like better way, not optional. 
would be would be the the driving force. Um, so you know what problem or need you're trying problem you're solving or need you're trying to fulfill, and just this relentless focus on the customer, and that's what often established or you know companies that lose their way early they lose sight of the customer. It's all about their ego. It's about the recognition, I want to kill the competition, for, and you know, you kind of forget the customer in the, in the equation. I love this timeless quote from Peter Drucker, circa 1950, I think. He was a business good customer, there is no business. To me, that's the essence of what an entrepreneur understands, and they'll fight anything to make that happen. Look at Jeff Bezos today, why we're all celebrating him as this amazing entrepreneur. One, he's always thinking about better, his whole day one, you know, it's become our myth, right? But he's, he said this recently, I love that he said this to his team. Someone said, hey, you know, what do you think about Sears being bankrupt? And he, it was kind of like gloating. And he's like, hey, that could be us. That'll be us if we lose sight of our customer. Now I could argue they are losing sight of their customer and I'd be worried if I were him. Um, so anyway, those, those would be a just a better way is not optional, and you'll do whatever you have to to make that happen. That's what I see these folks doing. They keep coming back. They keep coming back. They keep coming back. So there's a resilience that comes up in that um, that um, is kind of crazy, to be honest. It's kind of crazy. Hi, Beth. Thanks for uh, sharing. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm one of those folks that has gone from, you know, arguably Fortune One to a startup company. Um, and uh, in, in part because, you know, what you said, the dual track of, you know, innovating at the same time as you're keeping the cash register jingling um, is, is extremely hard. Um, and in my case, I found impossible to pull off, you know, I think at uh, Inspirave, the, 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 the startup that, uh, that I helped found, you know, we were all premised on really rethinking the consumer financial services business model. So rather than, you know, fees, uh, 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 which is how a typical uh, financial institution would make money, we were actually helping people reach their next big purchase and aligning, you know, our revenue model with the fulfillment of the goal of the end user. So I guess the question that, you know, that, that I have, and you kind of alluded to it, that there is this uh, high level of turnover at a lot of these uh, you know, larger Fortune 500 companies, I find that for all the talk- Just get to the question. Yeah. Thanks. All, all, all the talk of uh, corporate and startup innovation, the batting average is actually very low. So uh, any thoughts or wisdom on Yeah, the batting average is low because people don't realize innovation is hard work, takes patience and long term, and this trial and error kind of, and, and it's in it, it need, and it's in the face of most established organizations. And I worry about this for startup companies too that are just data driven. Um, think that the answer is always in, there's always more data that's gonna tell us the answer. They want certainty, they want repeatability, they want reliability, and innovation gives you none of that. And so what I worry that big companies and small companies do is everybody dresses up, it's like they're all ready to like go on stage, they have the perfect dress and words, they invite in the right consultants, and it's just intention of ever doing the hard work, the stick-to-itness that needs to happen. Um, and they have, no they have few investors who are asking them why they're not doing it. It's a leadership. At the end of the day, it's leadership. We can blame investors all we want. As soon as I say that, a good leader says, I'm optimizing today and I'm building tomorrow and hold me accountable for both. 
but it's hard. And so you see few people doing it. Well, be successful. I mean, I don't know. As a startup founder, be successful and show these big guys what they're not doing. Um, and, you know, you're going to need to, at some point, you're probably going to need to work with some of those big guys because what do big guys have? Why, why I liked working with startups, big companies have uh, access to customers. They have knowledge of scale. So at some point, you're gonna, they're going to come to you there. But be successful. Just get out there and show them how it's done. Um, that's the best advice I can, I can give to you. And at the time that comes when you need to partner with these guys, choose your partner well. Don't pick a company that's never worked with a startup before. Have them audition for you, not you audition for them, and make sure you have a very clear shared mission and vision and that there's some kind of guarantee that they're going to stick around for a while. My name is Kamika, and I just loved the book. There's oh, thank you so, so much, many, Kamika. Thank so you. Many good tidbits in it. Thanks um, for reading it. My question for you is, as a woman who very early on in your career, it seemed like you had access to Jack Welch and then Jeff and were involved with the succession and then, you know, making these big cases for not only yourself, but these roles and so on and crafting a way to be the innovator that you are and the imagination um, running free. For people who, whether you're inside a corporation or you're external and you're an entrepreneur, what kind of advice, particularly for women, you know, these conversations uh, to get access to those, those guys can be hard. And if you were struggling with maybe any confidence issues, et cetera, like you were describing, how do you get access and know when to take the big risk, like when you did with bringing the French guy in yeah. with the velvet cape? Yeah. Well, and um, I should preface it by saying, you know, some of the things you're talking about, I, I was pretty much late mid-career, right? I mean, some of that stuff didn't really happen until I hit 40, right? There was a lot of wandering around in the 20s and 30s of feeling, um, you know, lack of confidence. I'm never going to make it. I mean, I talk in the book of months that I didn't apply for that I thought had my name on it. Now, why would someone in good with, who had a brain do that, right? Because I was lacked confidence. And what I found out is they didn't consider me for the job because they're like, you're a young mother. There's no way you could take on this job. So I didn't tell my story. So I, you know, partly was having to go through many of those experiences to, to do that. And out of that experience where I didn't put my name up for a job, they didn't consider me, a person ended up becoming a bit of a mentor to me and helped me get on the radar to someone like Jack Welch. But it was only when I kind of had to get out of my own way. So how did I do it? For me, it was just a series of small challenges, small steps when I would feel like I'm standing in my own way. I document in the book, I was 30 years old, working at CNN Turner Broadcasting. I'd worked there a year. I worked with Ted Turner, the founder. He did not know my name. How I had to go up and introduce myself to him, and I did it in a very awkward moment. He was coming out of the men's room. It was horrible. Um, but I'd given myself a challenge um, that I was going to do it. As awkward as it was, he never learned my name, but I did it. So those were the kind of things that I tried to share very painfully. Like, I, I was a mess. I am still a mess in many ways. I'm a mess in my head. I, I psych myself out of it. So a lot of it is just small, deliberate steps. I'm going to go make sure they know my name. I'm going to ask a question here. I'm going to show up. And one builds on, on the next. So, um, you know, that's hopefully what comes out a little bit, but that's what it takes. Um, 
A few people I've seen in my career can just show up and go, hi, Jack Welch, I'm Beth, and I should work for you because I'm amazing. Um, I was shy, reserved, and I often had to have other people help me tell those, tell those stories. So what I try to say is, you know, be able to tell your story, be a champion for yourself, small, uncomfortable ways to, to get yourself out there. Anyway, thank you for that. Great. Thank you. Hi. Earlier Hi. in the chat, you mentioned this shift in your career where you stopped asking for permission and kind of did what you thought needed to happen. Did something cause that change? And if so, was it a slow transition in the way you thought? Or was it a seismic shift of, I need to change the way I'm working? It, it was a story, and I'm standing there, and like this guy who I work for doesn't know who I am. That was pretty seismic for me at that time. Um, and I didn't, you know, I, so they were those kind of, that to anyone else they sound so stupid, but to me they were seismic. Um, and with one little success more comes up, so it was really more gradual, more, and they were such small little things if I tell you, I mean, I'm going to go in this meeting and I'm going to ask a question, because the last five meetings I hadn't done that. And I was so angry at myself that I, ha I couldn't stand myself, so I had to go do that. So the permission granting was smaller kinds of things, and over time it builds up. I'm going to go for that job. I'm going to put my name off. Was more. Um, someone told me recently it's called rejection therapy, where you put yourself out there and you're rejected enough and you build up a resilience. So I didn't know I was doing that, but apparently I was. Uh, I was a good uh, student of rejection therapy, where you're just doing enough of these things that the feedback just gives you this confidence of, I can do that, I, I, can, I can be out there. You know that idea that that guy just said, I had that idea, I can do that. So it was enough of that kind of thing that I just couldn't stand myself anymore, so I had to take action. <laughs> so it was really that. Beth, thank you. Thank you.